read briefly in two places in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. These opening words of the Gospel that take us behind the seen to the unseen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And in the letter to the Hebrews, and one of these poor souls who always wants to say Paul's letter to the Hebrews, I actually have a sneaking suspicion that the Apostle Paul wrote it, but I've been wrong before. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Forty-three years ago, I was traveling on a bus from Edinburgh to the south of Scotland to give two Bible studies at the InterVarsity Conference of Scottish Universities. I remember the occasion for two reasons. First of all, prior to going, I met with Douglas Kelly. Douglas was completing his doctoral studies in innovation. I had recently begun studies at New College in the Faculty of Divinity. And I said to Douglas, Douglas, I'm going to the InterVarsity Conference to lead two Bible studies. He says, don't lead the Bible studies. These students know nothing. Just preach to them. And taking Douglas at his word, as I almost always did then, and mostly do now, I just preached for 40 minutes on two occasions to the poor students uh, on the supposition that Douglas was right, they didn't know very much, and it would be better for me to expound the word than to have them share their ignorance of the word. It was a little high-minded of me, but I blame Douglas Floyd (laughs) Kelly for that. But the other reason I remember the occasion was this. As I travelled on the bus, I brought John Owen's volume 6 with me on mortification of sin. It wasn't the first volume that I had read of Owen. I had stupidly started with volume 10. If you want to start reading Owen, you don't start with 10. And I actually don't think you should start with 6. You should start with 1, move to 2, go to 3, then you might go to 6. But as I opened Owen on volume 6 on the bus and began to read, I found myself 
in another world. As I read, I thought to myself, this man knows my heart. I felt a little like Eustace. The skins, the layers were being shredded in my life and peeled away as the truth of God began to penetrate my inmost being. And I found myself weeping on this bus reading Owen volume 6. And it left an indelible impression upon me. It impressed me with this, that no matter how difficult Owen might be at times, and his English is remarkably Latinate, he is always worth persevering with, because under God he will pierce your soul. Owen will lie somewhat in the background of these next three addresses, and occasionally he will erupt into the foreground. Owen's volume one on the glory of Christ has been a book that has dealt in many different ways deeply with my own Christian life. And perhaps more than any other book, probably apart from the Institute's, it has impressed upon me this principial biblical truth that the glory of Jesus Christ is the pulse beat of evangelical biblical Christianity. And if there is anything we need to recover in these dark, confused times, it is a reacquaintance with the grace and glory of our Redeemer. That, I believe, more than anything else, will minister to the church as it seeks to stand for truth and righteousness in a world that is hell-bent on crushing truth and righteousness. If the church is to stand in these times, it needs to be freshly reacquainted, affectionately reacquainted with the grace and glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. The day before John Owen departed to be with Christ, the 23rd of August, 1683, he dictated a last letter to a friend. I am going to him whom my soul has loved, or rather, who has loved me with an everlasting love, which is the whole ground of my consolation. The following day, William Payne brought him news that his meditations and discourses and the glory of Christ was now ready for printing, and Owen replied, I am glad to hear of it, but O oh, brother Payne, the long-wished-for day is come at last in which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. However recondite a theologian John Owen was, however abstruse he could be, he was a man who understood that the sole ground of his consolation in this life was that he was loved by Christ with an everlasting life, 
everlasting love. And it was this conviction that drove Owen, I think, to exploring this Christ who had so gloriously, graciously, mercifully, perseveringly, and long-sufferingly loved him. And if you're to make any sense of John Owen, you need to understand that he was a man besotted with Jesus Christ. He was a man who explored the revelation of God in Jesus Christ because this was all his hope before God. Owen begins his treatise on the glory of Christ with these words. Now, rest assured, this is not John Owen night, but I do want to introduce what I have to say this evening on the pre-incarnate glory of Christ with these introductory words of Owen as he begins his masterful, magnificent, heart-moving, soul-enlarging exposition of the glory of Christ. And if you've never read it, read it. He begins with these words. The design of the ensuing discourse is to declare some part of that glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is revealed in the scripture and proposed as the principal object. Now notice these words of our faith, our love, our delight and our admiration. I want to write about the glory of Christ, says Owen. It is the principal object of our faith, but not only of our faith, but of our love, our delight, and our admiration. And I want simply to notice with you the affectional language that Owen uses here. He's got no interest in writing an abstract academic treatise on the glory of Christ. This is not ivory tower theology. He wants to focus our faith on Christ's native and acquired glory and thereby draw out from us love, delight, and admiration. And that, surely is to be ever the hallmark of any theology that remotely claims to be biblical and that especially claims to be reformed. It is theology that draws out from our hearts love, delight, and admiration in the Lord Jesus Christ. Doxology, in other words, is the ultimate test of all true biblical reform theology and of all true theological teachers and preachers. No matter where we are in the theological loci, no matter how complex the instruction we are receiving, whether it be in Hebrew paradigms, or in Owen's Latinate theology, the ultimate end of all that we are receiving should be, oh, the depth, both of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his paths are beyond tracing out. 
who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay him, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory. Paul is acknowledging in those closing words in Romans 11 that he's utterly out of his depth as he has explicated the gospel of God, as he has unpacked the riches of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, he comes to this summation at the end. Oh, the depth. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. So my hope in these studies, these next evenings is that we will find our hearts growing in admiration of our Savior Jesus Christ. That we will find our hearts being melted anew by the glory of the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. One more introductory point before we press on and plunge into our meditation. Probably all of us, if not all of us here tonight, are pastors. We minister week by week by week. We bring the word of God to our congregations. And one of the constant cries from congregations today is for their ministers to provide more application. More application, searching application, heart-searching application. We want the word to impact us practically. Pastor, be more applied in your preaching. Be more practical. Bring the word to us in our circumstances. Apply it uh, diligently, uh, heart-searchingly, pressingly to our consciences. Now, it's true that a sermon without application is hardly a sermon. Richard Baxter wrote on one occasion, it grieves me to the core of my heart how many good sermons die for want of lively application. That's true. But I wonder if as pastors we are helping our people to understand that the exposition of Jesus Christ itself is the great application of the gospel. It is the exposition of Christ in his grace and glory that is itself rich in heartwarming, mind-expanding, life-transforming application. John Owen was absolutely persuaded of that. This brief passage that I want to read is something that has spoken powerfully to me these past months as I've thought about it and written about it. Listen to what Owen says. Let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ and virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us, And to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. 
When the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, when the soul thereon cleaves unto him with intense affections, they will cast out or not give admittance unto those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls hereunto as a constant view of Christ and his glory. Are your people struggling with obedience? Are they experiencing inward spiritual decay? Preach the glory of Christ, say. Preach the glory of Christ. Are people drifting in the way of Christ? Then preach to them the glory of Christ. Now Owen is saying no more, is he? Than what we read, for example, in in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. We know these words well, I'm sure. 2 Corinthians 3 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We want ourselves to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want our congregations to grow up into Jesus Christ. Preach to them, says Owen, the glory of Christ. Preach to them the glory of Christ. I wonder if it's ever struck you that the first imperative verb that you come across in Paul's letter to the Romans is found halfway through the sixth chapter. There isn't one imperative verb before Romans 6.12. Now there are different reasons for that, but one of them, I'm absolutely sure, is this. He wants to so set forth the glorious indicatives of the grace and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That that will become the pervasive principial pulse beat of the church's life. Yes, there are imperatives, of course there are. And they need to be proclaimed clearly and unambiguously. But not out of their context, not out of the soil or the grammar of the gospel. So think with me a little this evening then about Christ's pre-incarnate glory. Owen's starting point as he begins to unpack the Bible's exposition of the glory of Christ is John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. As the Lord Jesus Christ in his high priestly prayer lifts up his heart to his Father. And as he brings that prayer to its omega point, he's saying, Father, this is what my heart desires, that they might see my glory. 
Now the disciples had seen something of his glory, hadn't they? John 1.14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. By faith, they had come in measure to see something of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many others looked on Jesus. And what did they see? They saw nothing but weakness. A weakness to be despised and rejected. But the disciples, by the grace and goodness of God, had been granted the faith to see beyond the seen to the unseen. And it is by faith alone that we behold anything of the glory of Jesus Christ in this life. John Owen writes, the beauty of the person of Christ as represented in the scripture consists in things invisible to the eyes of flesh. They are such as no hands of man can represent or shadow. It is the eye of faith alone that can see this king in his beauty. What else can contemplate on the uncreated glories of his divine nature? What eye can discern the communications of the different properties of his natures in the same person? It is in these things that the loveliness of Christ's consists. It is by faith alone that we behold anything of the glory of Jesus Christ. The opening verses of John's gospel set before us as much as we are able this side of glory to bear and to understand something of the pre-incarnate glory of our Saviour. In these verses we're taken as it were and you will know them so very, very well but I was struck afresh when David introduced the conference when he reminded us that our great need is not to hear great new esoteric truth but to be reminded again and again and again of Christianity 101 reminded again and again of the great truths that lie at the very heart and core of the gospel of God. And it's because these truths become distant from us, we become overly familiar with them, that we need constantly to be brought back to them and be reminded afresh of the grace and glory of them. Owen speaks often of the tremendous difference between knowing the truth and knowing the power of the truth. And in these opening verses we are reacquainted with certain truths regarding the pre-incarnate glory of the eternal word who became flesh for us and for our salvation. Let me simply highlight a number of the Emphasis that John brings before us in these opening verses. What is it that he tells us about Christ's pre-incarnate glory? He tells us, first of all, it was an eternal glory. He was in the beginning. In the beginning was 
the word. There was never a moment when he was not. He was. And he is. And he ever will be. He was in the beginning. And this glory that was in the beginning was not a glory he relinquished at the incarnation. As we'll see later, yes, he emptied himself. Kenosis, but by addition, he emptied himself. Himself he emptied, taking the form of a servant. Subtraction by addition, if you like. It was the glory of eternity. And the gospel is so unembarrassedly supernatural, to use Warfield's terms, that we are left to think about this. That even as he sucked in godliness with his mother's milk, to quote Calvin, he was upholding the cosmos by his power. It was the glory of eternity. It was secondly the glory of God. There was Godness about the Savior's glory. He is autotheos. He is God in himself. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The glory of God. Now, perhaps some of you, maybe even many of you have found yourself sucked into the recent controversies within our circles on eternal subordination. Uh, I've read a little, not a lot. The little I've read, uh, most of it, if not all of it, depresses me. Uh, I find it ahistorical. I find it soundbite theology. Uh, More heat than light. There's little I want to say except two things. First of all, we need ever to be reminded that God in his being is incomprehensible. Herman Bavinck begins his prolegomena with this great statement. Christian theology is incomprehensible because God is incomprehensible. He doesn't mean God is unknowable. But God is incomprehensible. There is a a reserve about Christian theology that should ever be marked. We don't know it all. And the second thing I simply want to say is, and you may disagree with me, and you're free, of course, to do so, as to his sonship, it is a sonship derived from his father. He is the only begotten Son of God, but as to his essential deity, he is autotheos. He is God in himself. I don't personally think the Father is the monarchy. I think the Holy Trinity itself is the monarchia. Jesus Christ is eternal God in himself and from himself. I'm not sure there's much more we can profitably say, actually. I think there is great wisdom in the early creeds of the church 
the Council of Chalcedon when it comes to write about the union in Christ of the two natures, the divine and the human. They use four negative adverbs, you remember, asunkatos, adiairatos, atreptos, acharistos, without division, confusion, admixture, or whatever the fourth one is. I remember it better in Greek than I do in English. They use apophatic theology. Now, of course, the Greeks would go too far, theology by negation. And the danger is that we end up in in an abyss of unknowability. But there is a great truth in apophatic theology, theology by negation. Because sometimes we are so utterly out of our depth that all we can say is, well, this isn't true and, and that isn't true. What exactly is true? How do you positively speak of the union in Jesus Christ of deity and humanity? His glory is the glory of God, the glory of Godness. But it's thirdly a communal glory. He was with God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. It's a glory of withness. He was proston theon. He shares divine glory with the Father and the Spirit. Probably like many of you, I can well remember the time when I first came across Calvin's statement in book one. Um, I think 1317 when he says these words of Gregory vastly delight me he's speaking of Gregory Nazianzen and you think well what is it that vastly delighted Calvin Calvin's not someone who was known for overstatement and you think what was it that vastly delighted him and he quotes some words of Gregory He quotes just a few lines. If you want to read the whole thing, it's Gregory's Baptismal Oration 40, section 41. It's a stunning, stunning piece of of Christian prose and theology that leave you, I think, breathless reading it. Calvin quotes these few words from Gregory. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I'm thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Brothers, when were you, when was I last so overwhelmed by pondering the Holy Trinity, that our eyes were filled and what we were thinking escaped us. These early church fathers may have got a lot wrong, but my, did they get some things right that put us to shame. They gloried in God for who he is. They were overwhelmed by the wonder 
of his threeness and oneness. Not that he was three and one, but that he was three in one and one in three. And here John is telling us that this one whom he will later tell us became flesh, Kaihologos Sarks again at all, that he was with God in the beginning and was himself God, that he dwelled in communal glory with the Father and with the Spirit. Twenty-five years ago, I first arrived in the USA and uh, I'd come to uh, study sabbatical break at RTS and to pastor a little uh, Presbyterian church in Yazoo City, Second Presbyterian Church. And because I was in the Church of Scotland at the time, uh, the presbytery of Mississippi Valley thought it wise that I should sit all the licensure exams. Well, that was fine. Uh, in the Church of Scotland, I was only ever asked my name. No one ever asked me what I believed. So the exams were fine. The, the, the exams were straightforward. They were not demanding. And then I had to sit a viva. And one of the questions was, are you a five-point Calvinist? And I thought, well, they've brought me all this way. I'm not sure they're going to send me back. I said, well... I find the question demeaning both to Calvin and myself. Well, the committee looked a little nonplussed at this Scotsman. Uh, I said, let me explain. Calvinism is not about five points. It's about the glory of the triune God. John Calvin would be appalled to think that we were so reductionist that we pulled five bones out of a glorious body, extracting them from their native context and made them shibboleths of orthodoxy. I said, yes, by the way, I am a five-point Calvinist, but only when those truths are embedded in their native location, in the revelation of the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's that Trinitarian grasp that so magnifies God and that so, I think, draws out our hearts to these church fathers who, as I said, got some things badly wrong. But when you read Gregory or Basil, or Novation, or Hillary, you think these men are leading me into something that is vast and profound. And what Owen wants to do, it seems to me, in his exposition of the glory of Christ, and he touches on the nature of the Trinity and the glory of Christ embedded in the perichoretic relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. He wants to draw out our hearts. He, he wants us to be like Gregory Nazianzen, to be captivated, not just captured by the truth of the Trinity, but captivated by the perichoretic reality of the Trinity. To be taken up with God. And for that to overflow in our preaching. 
so that as we preach the word of God, we preach as men who have been overwhelmed even a little by the glory of who God is. And then fourthly, we can say here that this pre-incarnate glory was a glory that was unique to Christ as God the Son. There is a glory that, is, that uniquely belongs to each of the three persons. And maybe we, we want at times to ask the question, well, what exactly is the glory that is unique to God the Son? What is this glory? That he is God the Son. That's the glory. It's the glory of him as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father has a glory unique to him as the Father. And the Spirit has a glory unique to him as the Spirit. And the Son has a glory unique to him as the Son. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. And the fifth thing I simply want to say about this pre-incarnate glory is that it is a glory that neither advances in splendor nor diminishes in measure. You'll know that the root idea of kavoth is weight or abundance. God's glory is the weight of who he is. God's glory is the sum of his simplicity. And the pre-incarnate glory of the one who became flesh for us is the glory of divine simplicity, the glory of weight and abundance. I think it's only too easy in theological seminaries in our tradition to be so concerned to teach truth that we forget or lose sight of what actually we are called to do. And it isn't to preach and teach truth, though we are to teach and preach truth. It is to explore the revelation of the grace and glory of God in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, that we might be captivated by the truth. Not simply have our, our minds reshaped and renewed by the truth, but to have our whole lives captivated by the truth. So that we come before our congregations Sunday by Sunday, week by week, month by month, year by year, as men who have in measure by the grace and kindness of God, by faith, come to be captivated. And our ministry is there for the overflow of a captivated life. And when people say, well, 
you're banging on about God is three and God is one. But what's that got to do with the price of eggs? It's got everything to do with the price of eggs. It changes everything. Absolutely everything. We have seen his glory, says John. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's what John Owen is passionately concerned to to bring before his readers in his discourses and meditations on the glory of Christ. And I want to conclude as I began with those words that, that that for Owen captures why he has given such time and energy over many years to preparing these meditations and discourses in the glory of Christ. He understands that the health of the church, more than anything else, the health of the church depends on it being a people gripped by the glory of its Redeemer. And that's not something that we are noted for in our tradition. We're noted for being stalwart defenders of the faith, and that's good and right. We're not always noted as men who have been gripped by the glory of God. And so Owen writes, let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ and virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. When the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, when the soul thereon cleaves unto him with intense affections, they will cast out those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls hereunto as a constant view of Christ and his glory. (coughs) I would guess most of us come from congregations where people are struggling. Struggling in all manner of ways with the Christian life. Are we preaching the glory of Christ to them? I was quite struck by this recently, thinking of Jesus' words to Peter, do you love me? Peter had failed the Lord disastrously. And I would guess if you asked many people, why did Peter fail and fall so disastrously? The answer would be, well, it's obvious, Ian. At the moment of crisis, he became a coward. Courage fled from him. Why didn't the Lord Jesus say to Peter, Peter, from now on, do you promise to be bold and unflinching? Peter, from now on, do you promise... To be a man of steel. He says three times as you know. Peter do you love me? You see Peter's failure was a failure ultimately of love. 
It was a failure of love. That's why he had fallen. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes in his risen glory to speak to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, he says to this church that appeared on the surface to have everything going for it, faithful, hardworking, zealous, watcher of the faith, rebuker of heretics. This church would be on the front page of the PCA News or whatever it would be or the Free Church Monthly in Scotland every week of the year. And yet the Lord says, I'm about to wipe you off the face of the earth unless you repent because you have forsaken the love you had at the first. You see, for John Owen, it's not simply a matter of getting our doctrine right. It's not simply a matter of being noted as churches and denominations that stand steadfastly for the deity of Christ and for the truth of the Holy Trinity and for penal substitutionary atonement and for bodily resurrection and whatever else. Brothers, we can do all of that and be on the edge of extinction. Because the truth has not captivated our affections. Wasn't John, uh, Jonathan Edwards so right when he said, true religion consists at its very heart and core in godly affections. And that's what Owen is saying. The glory of Christ is to be preached, not simply as a truth to acknowledge and confess, though we acknowledge it and confess it gladly. But as a truth to glory in, or even better, as a saviour to glory in. Because it's the glory of Christ, and it's Christ we admire. Christ we admire. So it was this one who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God, by whom all things were made. It is this one who became flesh. Not simply to demonstrate the power and the glory of God, though he did that, but who became flesh for us and for our salvation. And tomorrow evening we'll look a little at the incarnate glory of Christ in that glorious conjunction that is utterly undefinable. The eternal God becoming a zygote in a virgin's womb joining our frail flesh, addicted to so many wretchednesses, as Calvin puts it. And in that frail flesh, displaying the glory of God. So may God help us and enable us, if only a little, not only to see a little more of his glory. But like Gregory Nazianzen, to have our eyes filled 
and our thoughts escape us as we ponder who God is. Let us pray. Father, we come to you as men who know little, who understand little. We come to you, Lord, as men who to our shame have been often content to confess the truth while not being enraptured and captivated by it. We come to you, Lord, asking that you will grant us to see with the eye of faith a little more clearly something of the grace and glory of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, gracious Holy Spirit. Meet with us, we pray. Pierce our hearts and minds. Bring us into a fresh acquaintance with the power of the truth. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord.